All right, if you would, if you have a copy of the confession this morning, we're going to be, again, looking at chapter 15, uh, paragraph number one, and we will also be in Titus chapter number three for our text this morning. So if you'd like to find Titus three in your Bible and then also find chapter 15 of the confession of faith. As we look at paragraph one, really paragraphs one and two, Uh, My intention this morning is to really give us an overview of the intent of these two paragraphs. And you'll understand in just a moment why I'm doing that. Uh, These first two paragraphs of chapter 15 dealing with of repentance unto life and salvation um, are probably uh, two of the uh, most misunderstood uh, portions of the chapter. Uh, I wouldn't go as far to say that they're misinterpreted as a whole, uh, but there are some principles, some concepts that seem to be uh, looked upon in a rather strange way. And so I do want to read paragraph one again. It tells us that such of the elect that are converted at riper years, having some time lived in the state of nature and therein served diverse lusts and pleasures, God in their effectual calling giveth them repentance unto life. Let's just read paragraph two, because this will go in with the overall view of both of these. Whereas there is none that doth good and sinneth not, and the best of men may, through the power and deceitfulness of their corruption dwelling in them, with the prevalency of temptation, fall into great sins and provocations. God hath, in the covenant of grace, mercifully provided that believers so sinning and falling be renewed through repentance unto salvation. Early in the life of God's church, really I think you could probably go all the way back to just soon after the apostles, there was a, we'll call it a mistake for sake of argument this morning, that began to weave its way into churches. And the concept of repenting in the biblical sense began to... uh, change into something that it was never intended to be. Uh, The biblical sense of repentance was gradually replaced by the concept or the act of doing penance. Uh, Some of you might be familiar with penance. Uh, It it is of a, a Catholic origin. But those concepts of doing penance and repentance are not the same. Uh, Doing penance is not doing repentance. And so there became this this idea, this concept that to do penance uh, implies that we can somehow atone for our sins and in somehow that our works in some way uh, can offset our sinfulness and our sin. In other words, if I do enough penance, it can offset my sinfulness or the totality of my sin. The concept, though, as we need to understand, is repentance has never, biblically, nor ever will be, a system of checks and balances. Uh, It's not a system of weights and balances to where we're constantly weighing, is there more on the good side or more on the bad side? Uh, And thinking that somehow by the amount that we do, we can somehow lessen um, our chances uh, of going to hell. Uh, that's, that's ideally uh, what, this, what this is standing upon. 
Uh, so again, we already know from just the theology that we believe uh, that we cannot do anything. Uh, we cannot do a single thing that brings us any merit or favor with God. And I mentioned to you at the end of our study last week that we have to keep very, be very, very careful that it is not our repentance that converts us. Okay, because if, if, if it's our repentance that converts us, then it becomes similar to doing penance. Repentance is the gift of God. We studied that last week. This morning, we're kind of dealing with, in a a very uh, roundabout sort of way, the time of repentance. And you'll see that verse 1 refers to a time period that is, it's peculiar. It calls it the riper years. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But remember, it's not our own repentance. That's the ground upon which we rest that God's divine justice has been satisfied. That's not where it lies upon. But rather, it is the, uh, and again, it's, it's the Catholic Church itself, for example, uh, makes penance a virtue. Uh, doing penance is a work by which the means of God's favor can be merited by man, and that clearly and truly is not biblical. Salvation is not of works, lest any man should boast. Not even our works are good in and of themselves. We can't even call a single work that we do in and of ourselves a good work. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us because we have no grounds for boasting. Correct? So we can't boast upon anything. An attitude like that would make repentance actually the enemy of our faith. So doing penance and repentance cannot be the same thing. Repentance is a grace that's given by God. And that's one of the beauties of the doctrines of grace is that it is something that's been given by God, not been given by us to God. So having said that, we all, I think, would agree that no man is saved, however, unless he repents. Now, again, remember, repentance is not the the converting act, but true repentance is absolutely positively necessary before God will pardon sins because we do know that Sorrow from for sin and a turning away from sin is the response of a heart that's been regenerated. Remember, that's the one key thing that separates uh, many different faiths, and especially with our faith, uh, we believe that regeneration precedes faith. And again, that's not a popular statement in every church. But regeneration precedes faith. So this repentance, when God in his mercy creates this new heart, which Paul talks about, this new creation, this new creature. The Spirit of God works both faith and repentance in the heart of that man. So although we are saved through faith in the person and the glory of Christ and the finished work, but it's not because repentance is the effective cause of our salvation. The repentance is not the effective cause because the Bible also teaches we are, not saved, we are not saved without faith in Christ and repentance unto life. That's why the confession writers titled it not just chapter 15 of repentance. They titled it of repentance unto life and salvation. And that's very key. So these two paragraphs, the one primarily in, in the paragraph one that deals with the riper years, and then the second one deals with people who fall into great sin. Now, let's just say at the outset that these two particular paragraphs are dealing with what we're going to call, for the sake of our lesson this morning and our study, special cases. 
They are special cases in that these two paragraphs mostly contain counsels and admonitions and warnings, but also encouragement concerning repentance. So really, before they actually deal with repentance itself, in paragraph 3, paragraphs 1 and 2 give us this idea of these special cases we need to be cognizant of. One, these that are converted in riper years. Those that are converted later in life. But then those that also, through temptation, fall into great sins and provocations still have mercy to return unto God. So how do we avoid making sure that we do not misinterpret these paragraphs? We need to make sure we understand repentance. So I've had you turn to Titus 3. We've, we've looked at this passage before, but you'll notice in your confession that this is the only verses that paragraph 1 deals with. Is Titus 3, verses 1 through 5. It begins with... with Verse 2, but we'll read verse 1. It says, Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So in order to avoid a misinterpretation, especially of the first paragraph, here's what the first paragraph does not mean. The first paragraph does not mean that only older sinners, riper people, (laughs) that's what this is referring to, only old sinners who lived for many, many years in grievous, scandalous, awful sins are the only ones who need to repent. Now, you and I should not have an issue with that. But remember, not everybody interprets things the same way. We see in Titus that even Paul, as he penned these words, I, 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 am, I am encouraged by the fact that Paul used the term, we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice, envy, hating, hateful, and hating one another. I don't know what it is, but it makes me not feel better about myself, but to see that Paul identified with the same foolishness that once overcame me and overcame you. That it wasn't just me serving diverse lusts while the Apostle Paul lived in perfect obedience to God at all times. I think one of the great encouragements of Reformed theology is the reality that nobody is pointed to as being the standard of perfection to say, listen, now, if if you want to see what real Christianity is, look at that person over there. Because none of us have reached that. We're only what we are by the grace of God. We are literally just that sinner saved by grace. But what's happening here is, is that this passage, 
And this, this part of the confession, this paragraph, gave some, of the, some individuals the idea that really the only people who need to repent are people who are really hardened sinners. Well, that gives us, a, truly, that's a misunderstanding of what we are because we've learned that we are sinners by nature. We're sinners by birth. Uh, we're conceived in sin. So that means even at the very young ages, we are still foolish and disobedient. So it does not mean that only older people need to repent or that the only people who need to repent are people who do really, really bad things. All people are sinners by nature and by deed, and every man and woman is called to repent of their sins. But we also should never imagine that it's something good or helpful to have lived a life full of sin before repenting, considering it is sin that took our Lord to the cross. Now, that's the first paragraph of what it doesn't mean. Now, how's this tied to the second paragraph? Well, the second paragraph is not a warrant, or as Paul would refer to it, a license to abuse the grace of God. Where we can say, you know, our confession teaches us that none of us does good, all of us sin, and even the best of us may, through the power and deceitfulness of corruptions dwelling in them with the prevalency of temptation, fall into great sins and provocations. Since I know this could possibly happen to me, then I'm going to go ahead and use that as a license to fall into some of these things because I find great pleasure in them. That's not what this means. Paul in the scriptures never identified a license to abuse the grace of God. However, what we do know is that these two paragraphs, the second paragraph, is not this license for the people of God to sin because God provided some remedy. What's the remedy? He said, if they do fall, God in the covenant of grace mercifully provided that believers sinning and falling be renewed through repentance unto salvation. It's almost as if, hey, if this happens to you, uh, just know that there's a way back. But this should not be something we intentionally set ourselves on the wrong path and say, well, God will lead me back. You'd be surprised how many, maybe you wouldn't be surprised, how many people are fooled by things like this. Where they take scripture that says God will provide a way back, or they use the parable of the prodigal son, or probably what should be better known as the parable of the lost son, and they say, well, look what happened to him. When he went and he came to himself, the father was looking for him. So if I just go out on my own and I go live to myself, I have a way back. That's not the thinking of a regenerated heart. That's not the way a person who has truly has this gift of repentance unto life and to salvation. However, Paul thought that the idea of actually continuing in sin, that grace might abound to be a repulsive doctrine. Read Romans 6 and see what Paul has to say about that, that, he, that a man, should he continue in sin? No, he shouldn't continue in sin. He, he uses terminology like, God forbid that that would ever be the case, that a man would say, I'm going to abuse the grace of God. Paul says in the first two verses of chapter 6 of Romans, he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So paragraph 2 really 
is answered by what Paul says in Romans 6. Even though in your confession, there's only two passages that are mentioned and footnoted, Ecclesiastes 7.20 and Luke 22.31 and 32. We'll look at those in the coming weeks. But Paul says in verse 2 of Romans 6, God forbid. He says, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So Paul would refute that entire idea. But it also does not it, it, it does also does not mean that a Christian no longer needs to stop repenting. So in other words, just because we have been brought to saving faith doesn't mean that we no longer have to repent anymore. Repentance is not a one time I took care of that 50 years ago. I took care of that 5 years ago. I repented. Someone says, "Have you repented of your sins?" and they said, "Yeah, I did that once." Repentance is not a one-time deal. So we don't treat it that way. So these paragraphs should be read as a way of warning. And they should be a way to encourage people who do fit these special cases. So if a person, and, and I've had people tell me this, I've had people tell me directly, I have, been, I have had no interest in God for so long and I've had no desire to be saved, I've, I, 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 it's got to be too late. Well, they were in their quote-unquote riper years. Now, the Bible does not tell us what riper years are, so everybody can breathe a sigh of relief. The confession doesn't say what riper years are. The Bible doesn't say what riper years are. Is it 50? Is it 100? I don't know. But the idea here is, is there is not a point in time where a person, as long as they have breath in their lungs, is incapable of repentance being given to them, no matter how long they've lived that way. So that first paragraph is dealing with men and women who spend many years of their life dead in their trespasses and sins. And sometimes those sins are horrible and vile before they're actually converted. Now, there are some scripture examples, and I would encourage you uh, to look these up yourself. We don't have time to cover them all because they're, they're quite large portions of scripture. But look at the example of Manasseh, the king of Judah. Uh, that story that's found in 2 Chronicles 33, 1 through 20, if you know anything about Manasseh, Manasseh was so vile in his sins, he went as far as to sacrifice his own children to idols. Now, can you think of anything more vile than that? <laughs> can you think of anything more atrocious than to sacrifice your own children to idols? Yet, scripturally, the Bible says there was a time of repentance, and he believed after God took him into exile. And that's really what 2 Chronicles 33, 1-20 is all about. You don't, you don't, maybe don't have the same, well, I'm going to make a, I'm going to make a bold assessment here. You don't, nobody here is guilty of that sin. None of us have sacrificed our children to idols. And yet Manasseh was provided a way. Now, again, he wasn't doing this intentionally saying, look, I'm going to sacrifice my children knowing that God will make a, God will make a way to him. Now, that was God's completely of God's mercy and God's grace. And remember, it's not why did God choose to save some. It's why did he choose to save any? Why did he just not let us all die in our trespasses and sins? Why did he just not say, you know what? I created you and I've just made up my mind that I, I'm finished with you. It's all about looking at the right perspective. 
the most well-known of those who was a savage, really, before his conversion, is Paul himself. Paul was the king of the Hebrews. This, he was the Hebrew of Hebrews. He was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was, at that moment, he was an arrogant blasphemer. He was violent. Uh, he persecuted people and the church of Jesus Christ until the Lord confronted him. It wasn't Paul out seeking for God. It's when God arrested him and said, Paul, Paul, why persecutest thou me? And Jesus himself, because to persecute the church is to persecute Christ. So even Paul, once he was confronted on that road to Damascus, shows us a pattern of God's divine patience and mercy. You can read about those in the familiar passages of Acts 9 and then 1 Timothy 1. And then what about the Philippian jailer? The Philippian jailer was on the doorstep of killing himself. He was getting ready to take his own life because as a, as a guard, the prospect of prisoners escaping meant his own death. This was not just a minor jailbreak. When those, when those walls were shaking and doors were opening, that, that jail, that prison guard knew, I am in a world of hurt because if these prisoners get out of here, I'm dead. So he decides, I'm going to take my own life. And yet by the miraculous intercession of God through the Apostle Paul, he's prevented from taking his own life because Paul preached to him salvation in Christ. And the Bible goes on to say in Acts 16, verse 25 through 34, after he believed, he rejoiced. There's three examples of three men who would probably qualify in some way, shape, or form as being converted in their riper years. Again, don't let the word riper say, oh, that means 75, 80 years or whatever the case is. Years of sin. And I'd ask you to ask yourself the question, how many years of sin is too much? If I'm only a sinner guilty of one year of really vile sin, am I really that bad? Am I as bad as the person who's gone on for 50 years? How does God view it? How does God view sin? See, we, again, we like to water things down to make ourselves feel better about what's happening here. And of course, Titus was, Paul, as he wrote there in Titus, or wrote in Titus, he's reminding us again that it was not until the grace of God appeared, right? So it wasn't we were disobedient, but after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. It wasn't until then that we even knew we were foolish, disobedient, and deceived. It wasn't until, and it's interesting that the Scriptures use the word kindness first. People talk a lot about the love of God, and we should make a big deal of the love of God, but don't miss God's kindness. The fact that God was even, even looked our way. So the encouragement of paragraph one lies in the fact that men and women who've been spiritually dead in trespasses and sins for many years, including whatever we could conjure up in our mind as the worst sin possible, are not beyond the saving power of God in Jesus Christ. There's none that is out of his reach. Now, if I take the promises of God that says he will lose none of his, 
We either are encouraged and comforted by that promise or that still bothers us. But the reality is, is he will lose none. None. Zero. Nada. Nil. There will not be a single one of his that's lost. That most vile, wicked sinner who lives their whole life in, dead in their trespasses and sins can be converted by the grace of God no matter what we think their eligibility or right to salvation is. And I would say be very careful about you and I determining who deserves God's mercy. Because none of us deserve it. Paul, again, gave us this pattern of the patience of God towards him. We've all heard about people who say, I'm just set in my ways. And often it is made a joke. They laugh about it. And sometimes that's a very serious thing. I'm set in my sinful ways. I'm not talking about things about people who have a habit of leaving lights on in the house all the time, even when nobody's there. It's a bad habit. I'm just set in my ways. I've done that since I was a kid. Yeah, I know the electric bill is going to go up. I know it's going to, but I just, I just want the lights on. He's not talking about things being set. He's talking about being set in the sinful ways of living to ourselves and living as dead in our trespasses and sins. So the instruction of that paragraph lies in the implication that, notice what it says, such of the elect that are converted. Okay, that instruction lies in that phrase. The elect are saved after a long life of wickedness are granted repentance unto life. Not that all the elect are converted after long years of ungodliness. So this is not saying that all the elect are converted at riper years. Everybody following that? What he's saying is, is that there is this group. There are these people who will not be saved and converted until their riper years. You know what that does? That means there's always hope for that individual who we're looking at and we're saying, what's taking them so long? Or the people like in paragraph two, who fall away. Can God renew them? Of course he can. What hope would I have today if I knew that if I fall away or I run away from God for a time, that he will discard me? Now again, he's not talking about apostates here. He's not talking about people who just say, I hate God. He's talking about those who, who were very much in the faith and they start, are in the faith, but by the prevalency of temptations and by the, the great sins and provocations, God mercifully brings them back. Now think about this, and this is from talking to some of you uh, throughout our time. Um, a child who is raised in a Christian home might only experience the light of salvation. In other words, they may become aware of it. They may become cognizant that the the, the light begins to go on, if you will. But you know, sometimes we put all of our effort and all of our hope in the light of that salvation, not in actual saving faith. That they've actually, they start to understand, they start to realize, and we sometimes are very, we're very forthright in declaring, well, my child is saved because the light of salvation has come on. 
Just knowing the light is there does not equal conversion. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? Just because the light went on doesn't mean that, it's been, that that soul's been converted. And parents have done this for years because, let's face it, all of us as parents want to know our children are converted. We all want to know that they're in the faith. But be careful. Again, I'm not discounting any profession of faith. Again, only God knows the heart. And I'm certainly not going to say, oh, to my child, oh, that's just the lightest. No, I'm just going to be very careful into what I declare because there are many people who they later on in life, they appear to have no faith in them at all. And then people are pointing back to that time. Well, but when they were 10 years old, the light of salvation came on. It's not about did the light of salvation come on. It's did a conversion take place? Were they truly regenerated? Was there really a change? Folks, that's why we're so careful to just simply just declare what is. For some children, the light of salvation, it comes on. And for some, it is truly. There are people who are brought to saving faith. Uh, and it's like, it's like a, a flash in the pan. It happens immediately. Now, again, we sometimes get, we get so extreme. We say, well, God can't possibly save a person at that one specific time. They've got to, they have to grow. And, and, and again, if we're not careful, we get into this idea saying, oh, no, they've, they've got to know all the doctrines of grace. They've got to know all about depravity. They've got to know all about all of this limited atonement and irresistible. They've got to know all this first. You're putting a limit on God. There are times when it happens that way, but for others, it is a slow unveiling process where there's a little bit of light and a little bit of light and a little bit of light. And sometimes it may take a person a lifetime before they actually say, Jesus Christ saved me. There is not just one way we're brought to faith. And there's not just, there's not just one way it appears. There's one avenue, one way, which is through Jesus Christ alone. But I've told you this many times. I've watched preachers get discouraged and I've watched them literally want to give up their whole ministry because they didn't see people running forward and getting saved after they just gave their best message they've ever preached. And they'll say that. They'll say, listen, I, just, I, I preached the best message possible. How do you not get saved by what I just preached? Well, there's problem number one. That's among many problems what I just said. But that's, that's problem number one. You are not the way of salvation. And I've said many times, a man can stand up and really have no great in-depth spiritual knowledge about the Bible. He may not have great homiletics. He may be a confused even in his eschatology. He may have some problems with some, some different issues. But if Jesus Christ, through, through His mercy and through the Father, through the Spirit, decides that's one of mine, He can convert a soul even through the most pitiful sermon that's ever been preached. Go back and read the conversion of Charles Spurgeon and tell me if that man heard an eloquent sermon. Because he didn't. He heard the words, look unto me and be saved from Isaiah by a man who was not qualified. Let me rephrase that. Wasn't trained. He was qualified. He wasn't trained. He wasn't polished as a preacher. 
He was filling in for the preacher on a snowy evening who couldn't make it. There was just two or three people sitting in a building and Spurgeon, who came from a Methodist background, walks in the back and he sits, walks in the back of the church, sits in the back and he hears this preacher who can barely get a full sentence out and he says, look unto me and be saved. Spurgeon walks out of that. He's converted. He goes home and he tells his mother at the time and his mother is furious, first of all, that he went to a Baptist church. She didn't, even, she didn't even really understand the reality of what had just happened to her son. So we understand that this saving knowledge of Christ, it may be in one sermon, and there may be an immediate conversion. But there can also be a crisis experience. We've also gone to this other extreme where we say there's no such thing as foxhole conversions. Listen, a person only got saved because there was a bomb getting ready to go off. They were in war and there was a bomb getting ready to come near. There was a missile headed in their way. There was a grenade headed in their way. They were in a moment of great fear and now they called upon God. Well, that can't be real. We're coming up on the 20-year anniversary of, of September 11th and you read the stories and you hear the stories and if people that were in those towers as they were burning and then when they actually came down, oh, people couldn't have really been saved then because they were just afraid. Listen, you're, you're misunderstanding what God can and is doing. Okay? Because just because it was a fearful crisis experience doesn't mean that it wasn't a real conversion. Again, I encourage you, read about the crisis experience of Manasseh. Read about the earthquake that shook the Philippian jailer. Do you think the Philippian jailer was more afraid of the earthquake? Maybe. Do I sit here and say, well, he wasn't converted, he was just afraid. I've confessed to you, I was probably in that camp at one time. They would say, oh, no, that can't be a real conversion because you were just afraid. Listen, there is some fear to this. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Since when, since when is man confronted by the reality of death and the absolute reality that he may be facing God, why do we so discount that? That God at that moment may give him the gift of repentance and regenerate that heart, and he is converted just before the building comes down. We have been and we have used so many Christian terms and Christianese over the years, we begin to lose sight of what the Bible actually says because we just say, well, that just doesn't sound reasonable. Look at, again, we've talked about these three cases. Paul. Okay, now we do know that Paul was confronted by the Christ and he was sent to be taught. But we should not demand of ourselves or others how quickly a person is drawn to Christ. Remember, the, the verse says, I will draw men to myself, all men to myself. There's no, there's no way to the Father except through the Son. That drawing doesn't mean it's going to happen in just the only way that you think it should happen. There are some people who are drawn slowly. And they, they actually, there are people, and I, I don't understand this fully, but there are people who are agonizing over the reality of why they can't get a handle on what saving faith truly is. If you've never talked to anybody like that, you might not know what I'm talking about. How can you agonize? Just reach out and grab him. Because you're not understanding what conversion is. 
I cannot make anybody in this room reach out and grab onto Christ and hold on to him and say, okay, I'm, a sh- I'm sure what I have here. Their agonizing desire to know Christ. Again, be careful about how we define these terms. But we also need to observe that not everyone who experiences some sort of emotional or spiritual crisis that issues or ends in a profession of faith is necessarily saved. Your profession of faith doesn't save you. Just because you say it is so doesn't mean that you actually are in possession of saving faith. There are other indications that Paul writes about and the other writers indications of new life. What does new life, what new life is evidenced? All right. So next week, what we'll do is we'll get a little bit deeper into paragraph number two. But what I want you to do for next week is just really think upon this, the idea of what this first paragraph, this time of repentance really means. We understand that it, it doesn't just give the impression that only people saved later in life need to repent. I, I hope we remember that. The confession writers didn't believe that. That's not why they put that there. Repentance is part of the daily life of a Christian. Repentance is daily. The confession was meant to not mislead, but to clarify. Remember, the confession of faith is not inspired document. It's meant to clarify but it should not be taken. If it was not going along with Scripture, we would just discard it. All people are born in a state of sin. Their thoughts, their emotions, they're all corrupt. So even though people are converted at a young age and maybe don't have a catalog of grievous sins, they still have things that need to be repented of. Repentance, as paragraph 3 will show us, includes a change of mind, right? But also remember this, repentance is a gift of God. We are a slave to our sin. A slave is unable to free himself or herself from that bondage. So both faith and repentance need to be given to him. Don't be ashamed that the gift of faith and the gift of repentance was given to you. It's not a shameful thing that you didn't get it for yourself. Rather, it's an impossible thing. The Bible indicates that repentance needs to be given to a person before a person will even have a time of repentance. So I want us to think about, think about your own conversion. Think about your own faith. Do you have a true saving faith? Did you receive the gift of God's repentance? So the question for today, we've already answered this, was going to be simply, can a person who has sinned grievously and lived long in sin still be saved? Is the answer to that yes or no? Hopefully it's a resounding, well, yes, of course. God can still give repentance, which leads to life through an effectual call, which goes back a number of different chapters when we talked about effectual calling. So next week, if you want to read ahead, we'll deal a little bit more in depth with paragraph two. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed from this time of study into a fellowship. We'll
going till our normal time will begin right at 11.15 this morning. And I hope we've all been encouraged this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time of study. And Lord, we certainly have not exhausted everything that could have been said. We have not exhausted every Bible, Bible verse and chapter. But Lord, we thank you for reminding us of what repentance is. And realizing that this time of repentance may not be the same with all people. We thank you for the mercy that is given to those who live years, maybe their entire life, dead in their trespasses and sins, and then at the appointed time, maybe the very moment before they step out into eternity, they are gloriously given the gift of repentance. Father, help us not to be cynical. Help us not to decide who and why and when, and simply trust in your sovereign providential hand. But Father, may we also be encouraged this morning knowing that if a believer truly, by the temptations and provocations of sins, falls away even for a number of years, that there is a remedy, there's a way back. May we never use this as a license to sin, but may we use it as a sense of encouragement to realize that we can never fall, truly fall away from the hand of God once we are there. Father, encourage us with these words. Bless this time of fellowship we have one with another. And it's in Christ's name and for his sake I do pray. Amen.